Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Okay. <laughs> um, it's always a trick. So, hi, it's Tuesday morning, and I want to do the Haftorah. I'm happy to say that a number of people responded to uh, my request last night, and uh, which I'm grateful for. And one of them, Brett Pevin in uh, Teaneck, asked to sponsor the Haftorah, which I'm doing right now, on Parshas Chukas. Uh, I'm, I actually plan to be in Teaneck in a couple weeks. I'm supposed to be there as a scholar in residence at BMOB uh, on, I think, July 30, <coughs> if it goes right. I believe that's Parshas Matas Masse, um, but more details coming. Anyhow, so thanks once again. And he's sponsoring in memory of his dad, Ed Pevin, Elio Ben Nochon. He writes to me. And so we said, Neshama, have an aliyah. Thank you very much. This is a very interesting Aftara about Yiftach. Usually I attack it from the question of how the guy kill his daughter. I've done that in the past. <coughs> I think I've exhausted the subject in previous years, even though it's no good answers. Right? I mean, I've gone through the different, as I understand, that's all I ever can do. Different approaches. It's not a good story. No satisfying shot. But today I want to concentrate on something else called something very striking of contemporary relevance. And that is the actual Haftor that we have today, in which Yiftach sends his famous letter to the king of Ammon. So very briefly, the Haftor is about Yiftach. He's one of the judges in Shoftin. Tough, rough guy. Chazal say, you know, Amoris. But on the other hand, he comes across very impressively here because what happened was there's a border dispute, and the Bnei Ammon are attacking and killing the Jews. This is Avra Yardin. Yiftach himself lives in Avra Yardin. Yiftach HaGilodi. Gilod means Avra Yardin. And it's a, it's a uh, what shall I say, a border dispute. And so, excuse me, so the story is that once Yiftach became the, the judge, right? Now, now he's the head guy. So, as I always say, the people who really know violence, and Yiftach had been a criminal, and who knows what, they know that a war and uh, guns is the last resort, not the first. If you have any kind of competent training in firearms, or, you know, Krav Magar and that kind of business, you know, the first thing they're supposed to teach you is this the last resort, not the first resort, correct? And so Yiftach, even though he knows how to fight, says, so he sends a letter to the Arabs, to the king of Ammon, saying, this is, again, on the other side of Jordan, roughly speaking, uh, northern half of the Dead Sea on the other side. And, uh, what's with me and you? Do you want to make a fight? And the king of Ammon says, we want her land back. When the Jews came from Egypt, known as Parshish Chukas, they took some land from us, the area between the two rivers, uh, uh, Arnon and Yabok, they're up to the Jordan River, give it back and we'll have peace. 
say I had a land claim. Okay? So basically, he said the land belongs to us. Yifta famously responds in the following way. Uh, we didn't take anything from you, but rather we took it from Sichon and Og. Okay? It goes through the whole long history, which is why it's part of our Haftorah today. Okay? And it says, And they had a war. So what happened was, Pashim Shat, without going to what I discussed yesterday, Pashim Shat, the Jews were on their way to Israel. One way is to go through Edom, and Edom said no, so they went around them. Then Moab said no, and they went around them. God told them, leave these guys alone, don't attack them. Then what about Ammon, go around them. So in each case, he had no time to zone the Jews because they didn't attack your country. They circumvented it. They went around them. The problem is how you're going to get into Israel. I think everybody knows the map enough to know that the Jews were coming to Israel in a weird way, up Jordan's side, up the Abraham side, so to speak. Now, which you can imagine four Geisha states. One, two, three, five Geisha states. A, B, C, D, E. A, B, C, D, E. <laughs> uh, the states that were interposing between where the Jews were and Israel proper, which is on our side, the other side of the Jordan. In other words, Cisjordania, not Transjordania. So the five countries that were blocking the Jews were uh, Edom, and then Moab, and then Ammon, and then Sichon, and then Og. Okay, that was a problem. How are you going to get into Israel? So let's say, for example, Sichon and Og would have made peace. They said, we don't want you to go through our land, something like that, but just go around us. The Jews would have had no choice but to go all the way up through Syria, around the Canaret, and come down through the Golan Heights, or who knows how, and invade the country that way. But as it happens, we're told in the Chumash, God put into the mind of Sichon to attack the Jews, not simply say what the others did, not repeat what the king of Edom did successfully, and the king of Moab and the king of Amma, but rather say, I'm going to fight you. And God says, I've made this happen. Does it give you a chance to wipe him out? Make a shortcut. So you can't go into Israel through Edom or through Mo, through Ammon, but you can go through Sichon and Og, because since they're attacking you, you have the right to wipe them out. And now you own the northern two states of the five states. You own that. That becomes what we call Avrayardin, which, as we know, eventually was divided up between Reuben, God, and Chassim, and Asha. I'm just saying what everybody knows. That way he goes from there straight into Israel, and that's what they did. That's what they did. Okay, so in the course of this, that's what our Haftorah is referring to. And this is just reprised, repeated in Yiftah's letter to the enemy. And he said, you know, we went up here and we attacked, or we were attacked by and we defeated and wiped out Sichon and Og. It so happens, Yiftah says to the Ammonites, that Sichon had had a war with you, Ammon, and he conquered territory from you. Okay? And annexed it. So when we took over the land of Sichon, we mainly got your territory. But you had already lost it to Sichon, so don't come any times with us. So the Ammonites were claiming like some ancient rights. There was no United Nations at that time. There was no concept of international law. War was done by conquest. That's how it was. Uh, and since Sichon conquered it from you, and we conquered Sichon, so the land belongs to us. <coughs> Obviously, the gods, as he puts it over there, the gods decide who wins the wars. The gods decided, the gods, 
that Sichon should defeat you. So in other words, it was a battle between Sichon and his gods versus Amun and your gods. And Sichon and his gods prevailed. And now our God came and did the same thing, but that we should win. So therefore, leave us alone. You think I'm making this up. He says to the parasha, whatever your God left you, you keep. Whatever our God left us, we keep. He uses the language of what is earth. It's very interesting. Because from a strictly frummy point of view, he shouldn't have said that. What do you mean? You know, he shouldn't have said that. Uh Kechov. Here it is. Whatever your God, whose name was Kamosh, has given you, you keep. And what our God, Hashem, your Kevokki, whatever He made, we keep. So He uses the language I understand. Now, the simple push of shot is that this is diplomacy. You couldn't explain to a pagan there are no gods. <laughs> you understand? There are no gods at all. Are you nuts? No gods in Edom, Ammon, Moab, Aram, Plishtim, Mitzrayim, China, Babel, Persia. There's a million gods out there. No, there aren't. It's all big imagination. You would look nuts. So he didn't try to give him a Maimonidean discourse on monotheism and all the rest of it. He talked their language. He said, you, you're Lishitascha. When you lost the land to Sichon, obviously your God decided that he can't beat them. So, and when our God, when we defeat our God, does so we get it. That's the essence of the argument. Okay? Of course, this was not an answer that was acceptable to the Ammonites. And so he came to war, and he said, fine, okay, for the war, it's a war, and he beat them. You have to conquer them. Okay? In 20 battles or something like that. The guy was tough. But, honorably, he said, listen, I'm not looking for a fight. Mali Valach. We keep what our God gave us, you keep what your God gave you. Let's not make fights. The guy who wanted to fight? Fine. Okay, you want to fight? We'll have a fight. That's a plain story. What's fascinating about it is in contemporary politics. It's a repeat, or it's a foreshadowing, of a major issue that's in the Middle East today, the Hainu, the border between Israel and Syria. I don't think most people are so familiar with this. Most people are not aware that in 1948, when Israel became a state, they were attacked by all these different Arab armies. The Arab armies did not succeed in wiping out Israel, but Israel did not succeed in wiping out the Arab armies either. Okay, let's get clear about that. What Israel did succeed in doing, for the most part, was driving the Arab armies out of the Jewish parts that they tried to take over. Um... Israel took over the Negev, the, uh, I guess the, let's see now, the Western Galilee. These are territories that were not originally assigned to Israel in the UN Charter. The Arabs invaded there, or they had the Palestinian things over there. And by the time it's over, the Israeli army Sahal, as they created it in, in, in mid-48, was able to uh, kick the Egyptians out of Negev for the most part. They were not able to kick the Egyptians out of the Gaza, they were not. Israel wasn't strong enough. I mean, it's a whole story with Truman and all that, but leave it alone. And same with Jordan, for the most part, for the most part, they, were, they, they couldn't take over the Jordan side, 
the uh, you know the shtachim, as we call it, but they were able to keep the Jordanians or the Arabs out of I don't know, let's say Tel Aviv, Yafo, the coastline. Now, and Lebanon invaded, but Israel was able to beat Lebanon, driving back to the original border. That's the border of the Mandate of Palestine, which is Israel's borders. But I want to talk about another piece, Syria. Many people are not familiar with the fact that in 48 and 49, the Syrians conquered a piece of Israel and Israel could not dislodge them. So when, when, when the fighting was over and they started having the peace talks, the armistice talks, the Syrian army was still, I think, in Mishmar Yardin or someplace. They, they had conquered a chalik of Medinat Yisrael. And Israel was not able to beat them back. Now, it's complicated. If they had mobilized a full army and an offensive, and then, you know, they probably could have. But the way the politics was going with the United Nations and all the rest of it, it didn't happen. And instead, what happened was that the UN negotiated some kind of a armistice talks with a very complex matter. They said Syria will pull back from this piece of Israel that they'd occupied. On the other hand, Israel has to agree to demilitarize zones on the Israeli side. Uh, they get it on the Israeli side, where Israel cannot have weapons and things like that. You know where it's up Hula, where, where the lake is? You know, Hula Lake, which I'm hoping, by the way, if my plan works out and we have this uh, trip to Israel, which I'm hoping will be in January, working on the details all the time. So uh, I would like one of the places to stop up there, but it, which is pretty if you get the right time of the year. <clears throat> Anyhow, um, but there's a lot of politics involved there. If I'm successful, we have this trip, and we go where we want to go, I'll show everybody exactly what the problems were. And it's fascinating the way it parallels what you have with Yiftach and Arhav Torah today. Fascinating. Because what happened was that these armistice arrangements that were organized by the United Nations in 1949 were supposed to be temporary. The ichor is that the Syrian army withdrew from its occupied parts of Israel to the Syrian side in the Golan. The Israelis were required under the agreement, first of all, not to cross into Syria, but second of all, to demilitarize, known as to mark off that they can't control 100% parts of the Israel side. And the Syrians are supposed to demilitarize the whole Golan Heights, which later they didn't do. But both sides cheated. The Icarus is as follows. What about the Kinneret, the big uh, lake that's up there, the Sea of Galilee? So, here you have a funny situation. And if you're interested in what I'm saying, you'll look at a map online and you can see it. The Kinneret, as you know, is smack in the middle up there. And part of it is on, uh, and, and looks like it's a border between Israel and Syria. On this side, Tiberia and so forth, is the Israel side. The other side is the Syrian side. Now today, because of the 67 war, Israel occupied the Golan Heights, so it's all on the Israel side. But I'm talking about from an international law point of view, and up to 67. So again, it's supposed to be this side is Israel, and this side is Syria. Not really. And the reason is as follows. You had World War, excuse me, had World War I. 
the whole area before World War One, Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, the whole constant business was under Turkey, Ottoman Turkish Empire. So there were no borders, it was one big blob of territory. Up to the First World War. Then, when Turkey was defeated, the two occupying powers were the British and the French. That's how they split the Middle East. And for our purposes, you look at the whole Gansan Syria Palestine area, England took the Palestine part, and France took the Syria part. So England took the southern part, the French took the upper part. Where exactly is the, the dividing line? They had to work that out. It had never existed before. So they had to make it up. Because it used to be one big blob of Turkish territory with no divisions. You know what I'm saying? But now, this is going to be British territory, this is going to be French territory. <clears throat> so how do they do that? And to make it more worse, the British didn't own Palestine, they had it as a picadon. Same thing, the French didn't own Syria, they had it as a picadon from the League of Nations. But de facto, they ruled it. So a British officer and a French officer got together in 1923, and they said, listen, we want to clarify things, and so let's draw a line, and that'll be the border between the British part, which we call the Mandate of Palestine, and the French part, which they call the Mandate of Syria. And they drew the line that you see today, which is the Israel-Lebanon border, going like this, you know, south of the big river Litani, unfortunately for Israel, and going up to Metula, and, you know, that finger sticking up in the Galilee, panhandle they call it. And then the other side is Syria. <clears throat> the way they drew the map... This British guy and the French guy, for certain reasons, they drew it very interestingly that the Kinneret is entirely in the British territory. If you look closely, you'll see that obviously this side is the Israeli side, this is the, the British-Palestinian side. And on the other side, the border was written, was, was uh, inscribed, all of the Kinneret is in the British side, even the other side to a couple hundred meters, let's say a quarter of a mile, something like that. Something like that. A little more, maybe. So, even though it looks like this is Syria and this is Israel, but really, 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 if you look very closely, the whole of the Canary is in Israel, with Syria having none of it. The Syrians at that time said, who gave the French the right to do this? But that's what they did. And that became the international border that was recognized by the League of Nations and the United Nations. And that's the legal border. This uh, is something the Syrians never accepted. Okay? Adayam is there. They say it wasn't fair that the border is written such a screwball way because Syria is right up to against the Canary. They should have at least half. Israel half and Syria half. Of course, they would have won it all, but I'm just saying. Chazi, chazi. Israel said, tough luck, heck with you. That's the way they wrote the borders. And we're going to keep it. Um... Syria never accepted it. And this has been a war since 48. It's just like the Parsha with Yiftach. The Syrians say the border is ours. The Israelis say the British took it and we got it from the British. So tough luck on you. And they say it's not fair. We don't win. Now, in the case of Aftar, they said, well, let's have a war. Well, they had a war. 67, 73. Well, we won another war. 
That has been the position of Siri Adayomis. It'll never change. Never change. Now, I said before, it's supposed to be demilitarized, that the two sides shouldn't have armies there. To tell you the truth, Israel cheated, and then Syria cheated, and Syria, as you know, fortified the whole Golan Heights, even though, according to the armistice agreements of 49, they weren't allowed to do that. But Israel cheated, too. These are the nitty-gritty things, if you're a, what's the right word, a real Israel history nerd. So it's exactly the same Tainus, Adayomazeh, that you find with Yiftok and the Bnei Amun. Again, the Syrians say that we sh- we never should have lost it. It was ours, Lachatkila. Now, bind you, from a t- legal point of view, there never had been a country called Syria. At the time, the French and the British wrote that line, Syria as a country didn't exist. It had been under the Ottoman Turks. Well, under the Ottoman Turks, there was no borders. Yeah, but when you have a Syria now, you have to have borders. Who gave the French the right to do so? They were ruling in the 1920s in British ruling Palestine. You can't solve these questions. You know what I'm saying? It's fights. Now, what's interesting is, fascinating actually, is Donald Trump. What I mean is, the Syrians, uh, already in the 50s and 60s, started just simply de facto crossing that quarter of a mile and going fishing and shooting and shooting and things like that in the Canary. If you know your history, there's a lot of shooting back and forth between the Israelis and the Syrians in the early 60s before the 67 war. It's one of the causes of the 67 war. But more importantly, the Syrians said, you know, Israel is taking water for the Canary, which really should be at least half ours, and they didn't get our permission. And Israel needs that water in order to survive. So what we're going to do is cut off the waters that shouldn't go into the Canaret. Because the Canaret itself gets from little rivers that are north of the Canaret, which are 100% in Syria. You understand? 100% in Syria. Um, so, since the waters that feed the Canaret, 100% in Syria, we have the right to block it off. And this is what led to the 67 war. Because, how does international law deal with this? Suppose I depend for my life on a stream of water that runs in your property, and you say I'm going to cut off that water. So no, you say like, and you say like this: I have the right to do it because it's my karka. I say like this: You're karka, but you're going to kill me. Well, then it becomes a question like this: Is karka docha pikuach nefesh, or is pikuach nefesh docha the karka? Is it private ownership more important than the other person's right to live, or vice versa? I'm not an international law expert, but I know what Israel's answer is. And this has been Israel's position since 67, basically. Which is, we can't give all this back, because then the Syrians will have the opportunity, and they will use it sometime or other, to cut off the water from the Canary. Uh, in Bill Clinton's time, and sometimes afterwards, believe it or not, the Rabin government and others were playing with it, including Bibi, were playing with the idea, well, if we get a a real tre- peace treaty with Syria, we will then divide, we'll let them have that quarter of a mile and we'll divide the canary between the two sides. Of course, they're crazy, but that's Israel's choice. They're crazy because sooner or later, some group in Syria, like the Iranians, will cut off the water. Uh, Menachem Begin, not surprisingly, a people like that, said, Pikuch Nefesh is a private property. Since Israel cannot trust Syria 
intrinsically that they won't cut off the water. So Israel not only has to hold on to its part under international treaty, that line of a quarter mile and the whole Kinneret, but Israel also has to control the little rivers that come into the Kinneret, which is the Golan Heights. That's Upshara. Now you know the shot in the Golan Heights. It's not simply it overlooks Israel. It has the sources of water, those little rivers that feed into the Canary to provide it with the water. And therefore, the national security of Israel, in other words, the, literally the Pekoch Nefesh, is doch everything else. Therefore, Menachem Begin annexed the, the Golan Heights to Israel. Oh, what, 1980, something like that. This was against international law. The United States and all the other countries said we're not going to erase this, and they still don't. Until a couple years ago, the most shocking, I say this in a positive way, the most shocking thing that Donald Trump did in the Middle East was not um, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, even though that's Hashem too. I understand the significance of that. But at the end, that's symbolic. The most amazing thing that Donald Trump did when he was president of Israel was he said the United States now recognizes Israel has the right to annex the Golan Heights to Israel, which is against international law. It's not supposed to acquire any territory by war. Israel got this in the 67 war. But what Donald Trump was basically saying, I'm not sure he understood the complexity of it, but what he basically was saying is that that the Syrian rights to their territory uh, cannot trump uh, Israel's right to live. And since Syria might cut off the water, so Israel can't afford that, and America hears that, and therefore America is willing to uh, set back Israel on this. Now, that was the last administration. Uh, Donald Trump's always a wild card, as you know. And now it's the Biden administration. So far, they have not moved to cancel um, this recognition. I've been watching that. So far, they haven't said the United States withdraws its recognition of Israel's annexation of the West Bank uh, of the uh, Golan Heights. At least, as far as I know, I don't follow this thing minutely, but I follow it fairly well. And so we mamish have the parsha of uh, of Yiftach, because the claim of the enemy is that it's our land and the French had no right to give it away, and the fact we lost it to the French doesn't mean that the that anybody got it from the French has the right to it. The French conceded that quarter of a mile that gives Israel the total control of the Canaret. And Israel claims yes. That's exactly what happened in the Parsha of Yiftach. The Bnei Almon said the fact that we lost it in a war to Sichon and Israel subsequently got it from Sichon does not grant Israel the right to that territory acquired from Sichon. And Yiftach said yes it does. Now 3,000 years ago, as I said, there was no international or something like this, is one way to settle it. And they did settle it. And because Yiftah was a keyboard, so he busted the uh, uh, Ammonites. But you see, as they say, when it comes to the Middle East, it's the same, plus de change, plus, plus, plus même chose. Plus de change, plus même chose. The more things um, change, the more they stay the same. I think that's a remarkable uh, parallel between Naftor on the one hand, and this basic issue of the borders on the other, which plague Israel to this moment. Most of the time you look on the paper every day, 
But the news, you see Israel's bombing Syria, this and the other. I mean, the Syrians are always trying to... I, I don't blame the Syrians. I mean, I get where they're coming from. But what they're claiming is the right to kill Israel by cutting off the water in the Canary. I mean, that, that, that's what it boils down to. Oy vey. Anyway, once again, I want to thank uh, Brett Pevin for uh, uh, sponsoring today, memory of his dad. And uh, with that, and I want to thank the others for coming forth, as we shall see in the next several days, I hope. And with that, I wish you all a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.